Hello, and as you heard a few moments ago, in this program I shall be telling you how to have sex. Listeners are warned that because of the subject matter, the program contains detailed and adult discussion of downstairs things in people's front bottoms. <laughs> Here with me as usual are my two comrades from the world of the performing arts, Debbie Isaac and Stephen Frost. Hello. Hello. So, how to have sex. I shall first set attitudes to sex in a historical context. It is now generally agreed that sex is not as appalling as it was once considered to be. Modern people such as myself are apt to be open-minded about the lewd and depraved things it is possible to do with the less hygienic areas of the human body. <laughs> but there is evidence to suggest that there was more free love in previous millennia than there has been in the post-war period, including the supposedly permissive 1960s. I, for one, don't remember the 60s as being that permissive. Apart from being allowed to stay up for high chaparral on a Monday night, that was about it. <laughs> but it was during the 60s and 70s that it became apparent just how sexually uninhibited previous civilizations were. The availability of cheap package holidays brought a sudden influx of postcards featuring statues of naked ancient Greek men in a state of arousal. <laughs> for most of us, this was the first time that unclothed directions had popped through the letterbox with the morning mail. <laughs> unless we had an overzealous postman. <laughs> Before this, we'd only seen pictures of statues with erect phalluses in school library books, and then only because we'd drawn them on. <laughs> the urge to draw genitals on pictures is irresistible to teenage boys and provides even more entertainment than crossing out the not on signs saying do not clean out of the window and asking a maths teacher if it would be possible to have a maths debate. Therefore, the revelation that there are works of art which already have excited genitalia on them left a whole generation of schoolboys feeling quite redundant. Another aspect of the postcard phenomenon is, of course, that it shows us that that which is ancient is not considered obscene. If I made a Play-Doh penis, took a Polaroid and sent it through the post, I would probably be arrested. Or worse still, given a job on That's Life. <laughs> But to me, no, an oil lamp in the shape of an engorged winkle is considered no more lewd a subject for a holiday postcard than the Queen sitting on a horse sideways. The Victorians, however, were no respecters of antiquity. Any sort of nudity was considered an affront. They even covered the offending portion of the Cern Abbas giant, a famous Paleolithic chalk carving, which, since being restored, has left many an archaeologist feeling hopelessly inadequate. <laughs> Nowadays, the only obscenity being gouged out of the South Downs is the extension to the N3. <laughs> and there is no new erotica to rival that of the ancient civilizations. Someone should really make a hardcore version of the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and, of course, modern sex guys all refer back to the most famous work on the art of erotic love, the Karma Sutra, the Sanskrit treatise which shows that there are many, many more sexual positions than the four we use today. Missionary, doggy fashion, man underneath, and standing up in the bathroom at a party. <laughs> so, as I've suggested, there was probably more openness about sex 2,000 years ago than there is now. So what changed? Well, Jesus was born, and along came Christianity and its emphasis on virginity and celibacy. Nowadays, we know that many supposed celibates have not been as celibate as all that. In the last couple of years, there has been a marked lack of respect shown to Catholic priests, which I find personally upsetting because my dad is a Catholic priest. <laughs> but abstinence. Abstinence is something that's never been easy to practice, as becomes apparent if we read some of the dreams and visions of the early saints.
and all was darkness, and I did sleep, and in my sleep a dream the Lord did visit upon me. A great burning of the Lord's flame was about my loins, and an angel of the Lord appeared, and I saw that he was poor, for only a loincloth did he have, and his loincloth he removed, and lo, he was hung. And I saw that he was lame, for a mighty staff he carried. Bloody, I'm not reading this. Well, go on, I'm just getting into it. <laughs> But alas, was Satan abroad, and did blight the angel's staff, and it did wither to untiny stem, and all was disappointment, and the angel spake and said, I'm sorry, this doesn't usually happen to me. It doesn't say that. It does, look. Oh, Jezza, is that the dirtiest vision you could find? Well, there is the revelation of St. Anthony the Tumescent. That's where the Lord leads him to a dark cavern, and he must plunge his flame-tipped brand into the darkness, and all is panting and creaking, and the coffee cups get knocked over. That sounds more like it. Well, it's in that pile of notes there somewhere. All oh, right. The time we generally think of as being the height of repressed sexuality is, as I mentioned before, the 19th century. For the Victorians, sexual intercourse would seem to have consisted of a married couple lying fully clothed in separate rooms and remaining completely still while doctors poured boiling water over their private parts and recited the charge of the light brigade. <laughs> the only publicly recognised reason for having sex was so that a woman could conceive and preferably die in childbirth. <laughs> of course, on the quiet, the Victorians were up to all sorts of things. A Victorian gentleman would spend the day lamenting the moral laxity of the poor and planning missionary expeditions to forced a Maasai to wear underpants, and at night would go cruising round the slums, hiring chimney sweeps to dress him up as a shepherdess and sodomise him with a bust of Palmerston. <laughs> Today we are much more familiar with the concept of private vice and public virtue because it is now almost impossible not to get caught. Let's eavesdrop on a chat in the bar at a local conservative association. Damn shame to see Sir Charles in this mess. But the point is, it's hardly a resigning matter. Absolutely not. Frankly, it matters not if a chap likes to be spanked in a tie brothel for six months of the year, so long as it doesn't affect his work in the constituency. <laughs> no, so long as there's no breach of parliamentary procedure, it's of no consequence if a man chooses to mount a jar of grapefruit marmalade during the committee stage of the finance bill. Absolutely. I don't care if he beds a photocopying machine on the centre court of Wimbledon while the Grenadier guards throw soiled nappies at him. So long as he's discreet. So long as he's discreet. <laughs> what did he do? Sir Charles? Hmm. No, you know, bedroom, woman, sex, that sort of thing. Oh. Still, I expect there's full and graphic details in the papers, are there? Oh, yes, it's his brave little wifey I feel sorry for. Yes, why? Well, it was her he was with. Oh, my. Disgusting. Shocking. These days, it's not only the philandering of politicians which can become public property. If you're sat around at home, you can dial an 0898 number and talk filth to one of the royal family any hour of the day or night. <laughs> Many people ask me, as an expert on human relationships, what the Queen should say to her children about their libidinous, unrestrained carnal antics. And I tell them that she should take each one of them to one side and say, What's it like? Just, just look, look, look. I found the revelation of St. Anthony the Tumescent. Here you are, Debs. I'm not raising it out. It's just some pervy old monk's wet dream. It's actually a rather beautiful religious poem. I couldn't believe my luck when seven Swedish novices burst into my cell late one night and gave me a chastising I'll never forget. <laughs> well, he was out of his mind on homegrown incense. Anyway, I'm not entirely sure it's genuinely his work. Even if you could send a letter to Stag magazine in the 12th century, why would it take them 700 years to publish it? You bought a dirty magazine? Well, it's research. Yeah, but you don't have to buy dirty magazines, right? What you do is you go into the newsagents, have a shufty through the top shelf, right? And when they say, excuse me, you're going to buy that? You say, 
No, I most certainly am not, and you storm out the shop in disgust. <laughs> yes, well, thank you, but I think I'll be sticking to GQ magazine. Oh, well, don't do it till after the show. You're obsessed, you guys. <laughs> well, don't you see how humiliating it is for me listening to your bike shed conversations? Yeah, well, at least we're open about it. We're not going behind your back. Bloody right you're not. <laughs> this, this brings me on to the subject of double on tundra, that mainstay of our British sense of humour. In the 1940s, before entertainers were allowed to refer to sexual matters openly, a tradition was established whereby we don't say what we mean, but everyone knows what we mean. Except for my grandma, who thought Are You Being Served was good, clean, smut-free entertainment. <laughs> the Second World War is often credited with playing a major part in the sexual liberation of women in this century. There is a very clear sociological explanation for this, which has to do with chewing gum, munitions factories, and eye pencil down the back of the leg. But the great period of Sexual exploration was, of course, the 50s, the era of big suits, cappuccino, affluence and ponytails. Oh, no, sorry, that was the 80s. But, <laughs> above all, the 50s saw the birth of rock and roll, young people's music with an overtly sexual rhythm and message, apart from Bill Haley. The beat was a hard-driving fusion of black R&B and white plagiarism. It was all one big Levi's advert full of young men with quiffs, who were too fast to live and too young to die. Elvis Presley was young and raw, and his pelvic gyration sent adolescent girls into a frenzy. So why do Elvis fans idolise the 1970s Vegas cabaret act in the revolting white jumpsuit who was too fat to live and too daft to retire gracefully? <laughs> anyway, after the 50s came the 60s, and Lady Chatterley's Lover was published, which was a major blow against literary censorship, although the only people who read D.H. Lawrence are teenage boys who fantasise about having sex with ploughed fields. <laughs> Then it was the odds trial, then the 70s when they recorded all the music for porn films and there was lots of Frank Finley with sideburns doing it on the telly. <laughs> then it was the 80s when if you suggested sex to anyone they said, leave it with me, I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> and now it's the 90s. In the 90s, people are starting to be promiscuous again. The public can be very fickle in what they're concerned about. Five years ago, people were wearing condoms to watch the holiday programme. <laughs> But now they think they're safe from AIDS if they've got a plastic squash tomato tied to the front of their car. <laughs> but one group who are at very little risk from HIV are lesbians. All in all, it's a very good time to be a lesbian. Sex is safe, Katie Lang's in the charts, and young men are all wearing hooded baby clothes, so you wouldn't want to be seen out with them anyway. <laughs> Moreover, women are much better at sex than men, and therefore I should have thought that if you are a woman, sex would be best with another woman. Men will not thank me for saying that, but you must admit that women are the best people at having sex because they're so much nicer and more sensitive about the whole embarrassing business than we are. They tell us things like... Look, it doesn't matter. And... I don't mind. And... We can still have a nice time, even if you did lose your genitals in a lift door. <laughs> women are more supportive than men, and hence women are better at sex than men. So ipso facto quad erat demonstrandum vesuvius est eruptus. I propose that women are best off being lesbians. You can call me old-fashioned if you like, but that's what I mean. <laughs> Having said that, there is considerable prejudice against gay women. There's many a man resents lesbians for not wanting to have sex with him. Forgetting, of course, that even if they weren't lesbians, there's every chance they still wouldn't want to have sex with him. And so, by his definition, would be lesbians. And many heterosexual women also feel threatened by lesbianism because they see it as an attack on their way of life. It's a curious human foible that if someone does something differently from us, we take it as a criticism. 
Let's listen to this exchange recorded in a university women's group meeting. Look, just because I choose to sleep with men, you know, it doesn't mean you can walk in here and accuse me of selling women out. I know you haven't said anything, and you don't have to say anything, because just by your presence, I know that that's what you're thinking. I'm a feminist in my own way, and just because I wear makeup, you know, I don't accuse you just because you choose to look like you do, and I choose to look nice. And if I choose to look appealing to men, then I do it for me, and not for anyone else. And if I do marry Jeff, and that's if, and if I choose to support him until he gets a record deal and then give up my career to have children, that's my choice, and that's what choice is about, choosing. So don't come in here just because I haven't got short hair and DMs and overalls. Uh, I'm a man. What? I'm a man. I just came in to say I'm locking up in five minutes. You bastard! I mentioned that lesbians are unlikely to contract the HIV virus and that other people are taking a lot of risks. But are people as promiscuous as they were 20 years ago or are they sleeping around simply because they've got nowhere to live? Steve has been out and about with his roving microphone. Oh, Jeremy, don't speak in euphemisms. Just say he's looking for sex. No, I mean he's out and about with his roving microphone, conducting live interviews. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Steve, can you hear me? Uh, yes, Jeremy, I'm outside the studio meeting some passers-by. Excuse me, sir. Yes? Uh, where are you from? St. Albans. And, uh, could I have your name? Peter. Good. And what do you do for a living, Peter? I'm a management consultant. And what does that involve? Well, mainly advising small firms about planned mergers and restructuring company finances. That sounds like interesting work. Oh, it is. Steve, <laughs> never mind all that. Ask him about his sex life. I'm getting his confidence. I just can't blurt it out. So, Peter, do you work in London or have you just come into town to go to the theatre? No, I've just been to a massage parlour and a peep show. Now I'm on my way to an S&M club where hopefully I'll score and have sex in the toilet. <laughs> Steve, we'll catch up with you a little later on. Now, many people talking about the prophylactic sheep have made the hilarious observation that having sex wearing a condom is like having a bath with your clothes on. The trouble is that having sex without wearing a condom is like having a bath with a three-bar electric fire. <laughs> Recent television advertisements have been keen to point out that condoms are much better than they were, and that is true, apart from pub toilet condoms. Everywhere else you go, there are condoms which are generally straightforward, vaguely phallic rubber sheaths. Any shop you go into, record shops, corner shops, pronto print, would you like some condoms with that? You go into the greengrocers and buy some courgettes, would you like me to roll some condoms over them as a demonstration of how to use one? But pub toilet condoms are still the same ones as they were 20 years ago. Science fiction condoms, rough rider, extra ribbed, studied, mad, max metal sheaths for added mutilation. <laughs> Now, Steve is still out and about, and Steve, I believe you've been talking to a couple who like their sex a bit rough. No, I'm back in here now. They nicked me microphone, and I don't know what they're going to do with it. Well, you won't be wanting it back anyway. So, having said sex in its social and historical context, in the second half of this programme, I shall be telling you how to have sex. One of the most frequent complaints I hear about people's relationships is, if only he was more like you, Jeremy. <laughs> Another all-too-familiar complaint is that sex is all over so quickly, so my advice is start later. <laughs> and that will mean drinking a lot more coffee. Crass though the gold blend adverts may be, they have latched onto the important correlation between sex and coffee. 
the advert started a few years ago when he was indoors listening to Dire Straits or some such middle-of-the-road shite, and she came round and said, Hello, I've just moved in and I've run out of coffee, and there's an awful lot of middle-class people in my living room, and I wondered if I might borrow some coffee with a view to us having sexual intercourse at some point in the future. Because coffee is a euphemism and analogy for sex. If someone asks you in for coffee, they're asking you in for sex. That might come as a bit of a shock to Towns Women's Guild. <laughs> On the other hand, maybe that's why they get very little done. Once every six years, they crochet a doily for the town hall steps, and the rest of the time, at it like nines. <laughs> it's very much the vogue to point out that old people have sex too. Indeed, the Goldblen couple are starting to look as if their next commercial will be set in sheltered accommodation. <laughs> Older people are just as capable of enjoying the heated passion of writhing entangled bodies as clothes are ripped off in an orgy of self-gratification, as you'll know if you've ever seen pensioners in a jumble sale. <laughs> in the past, younger people have been rather uncomfortable about the thought of older people making love. This may be because we don't ourselves find older people sexually attractive, or it may be because it annoys us they've got so much time on their hands they're probably doing it more than we are. <laughs> there is also squeamishness about the idea of people with disabilities having sex. They're just supposed to sit around playing ping-pong and being grateful to Telethon. I'd like to see the host on one of those programmes say, now let's meet some of the people you'll be helping tonight, and then cut to a couple having vigorous sex in a wheelchair saying, no thanks, we don't need any help at the moment. <laughs> But surely the reason why the thought of other people doing it is repellent to us is that they don't fit our idea of the perfect body. The mythology of sex involves beings of perfection, whose genes fit like cling film, whose stomachs point inwards, whose legs are never blotchy, who can toss their hair without things falling out of it, and who can let ice cream run down their chins and look like love gods instead of messy herberts. <laughs> Sex is idealised by film and literature. Lovers in fiction are prepared for sex at all times. They never have to go to the bathroom before sex to check that the relevant parts are in an adequate state of cleanliness or stop halfway through to go to the lavatory. They always finish in time with the music and they always finish together. It's one of the great mysteries of anthropology that people are expected to climax at the same time. Well, why should they? They don't sneeze at the same time. But sex is supposed to happen according to the precepts of textbooks and any discrepancies ironed out by technique. Let's listen to this extract from one of the best-selling educational sex guide videos. Hello, and welcome to the Lovemaker's Guide to Better Lovemaking. I'm Dr. Andrea Beethoven, a specialist in neurosexuological maidopology at the Hospital of Erodo Psychomaniac Disorders, Coventry. Hi, and I'm Professor Victor Love Thing. <laughs> the Department of Hold On Baby. Oh yes, do it to me now, one time studies at the University of Sex, Coventry, Illinois. <laughs> In the course of our work as psychoskeletological neurotic counsellors, we meet many people who ask us questions like, Doctor, is it true that an erection can alter the line of my trousers? <laughs> Professor, can death affect male potency? Doctor, are small breasts just as good? And, Professor, can women enjoy sex too? Because how we feel about ourselves is important. So, we've produced this video for people who want to feel about themselves. But it's also important to feel good about yourself. Men often worry that their penis is too small. But we can reassure you that all penises are the same size, except for yours, which is bigger. 
And now it's time to meet Gino and Helga, a normal, happily married couple who we're going to follow as they have sex in front of a film crew for four days. A video can't teach you to have sex, except with yourself. But learning some degree of sexual technique can be beneficial. If someone says, was what all right for me, you may be on the wrong track. But there are extremes. One reads of the painstaking efforts of couples in their attempts to prolong and to heighten the intensity of their ecstasy. Just before the moment of climax, the man has to withdraw and hit himself in the testicles with a hammer. <laughs> and women's magazines, not the knitting ones, but the fashionable ones for independent, go-ahead, confident women, revolve entirely around men. They have headlines like, Is your man a real man? What's a woman supposed to think? Well, he can't be a hologram because he can catch peanuts in his mouth. <laughs> and they have lots of articles about orgasms. Orgasms on tax, orgasms for the self-employed, orgasms on starting your own business. And I even read one about the male orgasm which said that men can have multiple orgasms too. Now, the word too seems to presuppose that people other than men have multiple orgasms, by which I assume they meant women. Now, I am not an expert on female sexuality, but from what I can gather, a multiple orgasm is like a good stereo, something you see in magazines and other people have. <laughs> you may have thought you had one, but it's probably hiccups. And by multiple orgasm, I should explain, I don't mean several over a period of years. <laughs> and it's foolhardy to tell men there's more to be gleaned from sex, because men always want more from sex. Now men will ask their partners why they can't have a multiple orgasm and their partners will say, Oh, we've been through this. The flat's too small. It would make too much mess. <laughs> and couples who've just achieved simultaneous orgasm after years of practice now have to have eight or nine orgasms each, all at the same time, so they have to have the same number. And if one of them has too many, the whole evening's been a disaster. <laughs> no wonder human beings can't face sex until the last thing at night, which is a shame. We should really be able to just make love when we feel like it, public transport permitting. <laughs> but sex is relegated, shoved up the wrong end of the day, so it becomes this last grisly chore we have to struggle through before we can sleep. <laughs> Our attitude to sex is, well, we're lying down anyway, might as well give it a try. <laughs> and you can have an early night, but that's over by about five past ten, you've got to get up again and watch the telly. <laughs> Make it down the pub for last orders. Of course, according to popular fiction, we make love all night. A note of caution here, making love all night is possible and often desired in a new relationship. In the early days of a burgeoning romance, you may well find that you make love all night, but there are harmful side effects, and what you may not realise is that you're using up your goes. <laughs> Jeremy, have you got any constructive advice for the listener? Or are you just trying to put them off sex altogether? You've just preempted what I was about to say. So, have I got any constructive advice for the listener, or am I just trying to put them off sex altogether? <laughs> Above all, the important thing is to listen. We often don't listen to our sexual partner because they make such stupid noises we'd laugh if we did. <laughs> but it's often said to be important to tell your lover what you want, unless it's sex with someone else or a different species. <laughs> Role-playing in the bedroom can also be helpful. For example, I play the part of Gwendolyn in The Importance of Being Earnest. <laughs> while my wife reenacts speech landings from the Battle of Midway. <laughs> Lovemaking should involve play and experimentation, so get the clue to out and cut up a few rats. <laughs> Above all, sex should be fun. 
so don't watch Bertolucci's 1900 to get you in the mood. But I'm jumping ahead here. Before any of this happens, you've got to find someone to do it with. So what kind of person should you look for? I've already suggested that women would do well to look for someone of the same sex. But what about men? Male homosexuality inspires even more wrath than lesbianism, and there are more legal restraints upon it. It is often cited that Queen Victoria would not agree to the proscription of lesbianism because she did not believe that anyone would do it. Well, I don't believe anyone would shoplift Bernard Matthews' golden drummers, but you can still go to prison for it. <laughs> Another profession where male and female homosexuality are often frowned upon is teaching. Parents are worried that pupils will emulate their teacher's lifestyle. But if that were true, my whole generation would be wearing corduroy jackets with elbow patches. <laughs> Basically, whatever your sexuality, it can be very dispiriting trying to find a sexual partner, and people often set their sights rather high. Let's listen to these advertisements from the personal column of a magazine. Attractive woman, 30, seeks gentle, funny, athletic, tall, multilingual, vegan man who likes cats that stink and living grandparents for long walks, laughs, cuddles and understanding of suicide attempts. Preferably graduate, must have own car and powers of levitation. Photo please and no one-nighters. Older man, 58, of not repellent appearance, interested in conveyancing and British wines, seeks property-owning, non-smoking female... 17 to 18. <laughs> With private income and access to weapons-grade plutonium. <laughs> for marriage and long-term nursing care. Nude photo, please. No Catholics. Although these two advertisements demonstrate that people often have unreasonable expectations, that isn't to say beautiful women don't end up with repulsive men. Obviously, as a man, I'm slightly biased in this regard. Whenever a man sees a beautiful woman, he looks at her partner and thinks, what's she doing with that bastard? <laughs> and decides that he's either rich, her pimp, or an evil scientist who's brainwashed her and is keeping her prisoner. <laughs> in fact, whenever I see an attractive young couple canoogling happily in the park on a summer's day, I want to run over, give the bloke a kicking and say, don't worry, miss, this creep won't bother you anymore. <laughs> But having said that, I can say quite dispassionately that I have known several beautiful and wonderful women who've ended up with real turkeys when they should have ended up with me. <laughs> I think what happens is that men are frightened by women, and especially by beautiful women. So only men who are so arrogant and myopic, they have no idea what an appalling piece of slime they are, have the courage to approach stunning goddesses of beauty while the rest of us assume we're only fit to fill the role of platonic, nebbish brother figure who hangs around waiting to be a shoulder to cry on when Loverboy turns out to be a sadistic, foul-smelling arms dealer with 666 written behind his ear. <laughs> but how does a woman get the man she wants? Well, if you're a woman and you think you've met Mr. Right, you need to beguile and allure him with your cunning feminine wiles by suggesting immediate sex. <laughs> In general, whatever your sex or sexuality, how you act when you meet someone is the most significant factor. Here's some things not to say if you want to tempt someone into your love trap. Hello, you won't have noticed me, but I've been following you around for weeks and sleeping on your mother's grave just to be nearer to you. <laughs> Look, I don't want to freak you out or anything, but once you come in, you can never leave. 
I know you're probably thinking, who's this clot-hopping, frustrated oaf with a history of depression who shot a rabbit with an air rifle when he was nine and has never told anyone or really got over it? But I just wanted to tell you that I think you're the most beautiful woman in the room. Inwardly, I mean. I don't even look at you in a physical way at all. I mean, you might be really ugly. I haven't noticed. I just have such high regard for you as a person, even though we've never spoken. Would you like to dance? My name's Roger. Clearly, there are emotions involved in sex that human beings are not yet equipped to deal with. Even people who are quite cold and self-seeking about it have a problem because for them, sex is about control and making their mark. People give each other love bites as a token of affection. You might as well whack someone in the neck with a steak tenderizer. <laughs> it's hard on their forehead with a branding iron. Even if they don't want to stay with that person, they want to cross them off the list, write them off as an individual and maybe even feel contempt for them. Their lust is tied up with feelings of hate, for themselves and for others. Tied up, eh? <laughs> Tied up. Double entendre. Bondage, yeah? <laughs> oh, Steve. God, Steve, you great insensitive pig. Jeremy was just trying to do his psychological bullshit bit then. Oh, thank you, Devin. <laughs> yeah, but he hasn't given any advice, has he? The show's supposed to be how to have sex, and it's all neurosis and despair and insecurity and hate. Well, I'm going to do all the stuff about blissful erotic love now. You've run out of time. But I'm not ready to finish yet. Well, that's okay, Jeremy. We can try something else. Steve, give us some sexy credits. Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Jeremy Hardy. <laughs> Debbie Isaac and Stephen Frost. The producer was David Tyler. The program was a Positive production for the BBC. <laughs> Next week, how to be true to yourself, but lie to everyone else. <laughs>